The Bible begins with a breath. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a breath from God swept over the face of the waters. Maybe you're used to hearing it was the Spirit of God. It's the same word, spirit, wind, breath. Creation begins with a divine exhale. I like to think of it as a sigh of boredom. Everything is formless void, which turns out to be not that much fun to play with. God is there, alone and restless, like children with too many days off in a row. Just to grab an example from nowhere. Children staring at everything they have and dissatisfied with it all. All darkness and deep they've played with before. God sighs and gives God an idea, seeing the breath ripple those waters. God blows the deep to one side and starts to form a world. Then God begins filling that no longer formless void with creatures into whom God breathes the breath of life. And finally, God takes that newly uncovered earth and molds it into an unfamiliar shape, a human shape as it turns out, and exhales into it. Not much, just enough to inflate its tiny lungs, just enough to blow out the candles on a birthday cake or sing a line of the hallelujah chorus, a little puff. And the clay comes to life, a human being. And the rest is history. The truth is, there are only four Advent sermons, which, if you've been to a church in December ever, you already know. There's the sermon that you're never quite expecting at the beginning of December, like this week, where an angry prophet is telling you about the end of the world, and you're like, I came back from Thanksgiving for this. That's one sermon. And there's a sermon about incarnation, about the God, the one God sends us to bring a new world from that ended old one. And there's a sermon about waiting for that one to come and a sermon about preparing for that one to come, which is just the sermon about waiting for that one to come, but like a little busier. Those are the four Advent sermons. And in staff meeting this week, I was considering them like a kid who's had too many days off in a row. I've played with them all before. Trying to move things along, Rebecca finally asked, what do you want to preach? And I said, I want to preach about God creating a world so beautiful and compelling that God wants to join in. I want to preach that God watches creation unfolding, watches life unfolding, all that breathing in and breathing out and wants to take a breath. God exhales everything into being and finally wants to inhale, to breathe it in, to be part of it. God watches all of this human being and longs to know it from the inside, the crying and the closeness and the caring. So God puts on a body and does it. That's what I want to preach. But that's not in the story. There's no evidence for it. Nothing in the Bible says God wanted to take a breath. And Rebecca, being helpful, said... There are lots of stories about God needing to take a breath. And I, like a pouty kid, said, but I don't want to preach about God needing to take a breath. I want to talk, I want to preach 
about God wanting to. And finally she said, just do it. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. No one is going to be there. (laughs) Which turns out not to be true. Thank you. When Nola took her first breath, it was, like many babies, to cry. Unlike most babies, we hadn't been sure she'd be able to do that. Her tiny size and early arrival meant that the formation of her lungs was a big question mark. So as the doctors brought her out into the air for the first time, Rochelle and I were leaning against the bustle of that OR to listen for anything we could learn about this new member of our family in her first moments. And then from behind the curtain that they had up, she cried. In those early months, the doctors were concerned that Nola breathed too rapidly. I didn't know how a baby was supposed to breathe, but her lungs, her little lungs, did seem to be working overtime. Once they called my attention to it, I watched it nervously. Rochelle remembers that I watched it nervously long after the doctors had stopped. At night, as I rocked her to sleep, I would count her breaths. I would wait for the digital clock next to our rocking chair to tick over to the next minute, and then I'd place my hand lightly on her chest and anxiously number every rise and fall, sometimes as many as there were seconds until the clock ticked over again, which I knew wasn't good. I'd hold her closer and slow my breathing in hopes that it would rub off, that I could will her to be well. And then I'd wait for the clock to tick over again and reset my count. I often tell the story of Nola's birth as one of difference, the extraordinary circumstances that brought her to life. But from what I've heard from other parents, most of what I've experienced is just ordinary parent stuff. Listening for that first cry to find out whatever you can putting your hand on that tiny chest in a dark room just to make sure they're still breathing, anxiously trying to will them to be well. There's no biblical evidence to suggest that God saw such parenting and wanted some part of it, that God wanted to stretch out new lungs in a borning cry, wanted to feel a parent's trembling palm resting lightly on an infant chest, wanted to know a family's hopes for wholeness and wellness. The story never says any of that. But it does say that by the time the shepherds and angels and all of that extraordinary stuff happens, Jesus was already swaddled and in the crib. They'd already had a little time together as a family his parents leaning against the bustle of that stable, maybe, for anything they could learn about their new child. It does say that by the time the Magi arrived, Jesus is old enough to be sleeping through the night, enough time for that anxious hand on the chest in the dark room to have grown less and less frequent. It does say that when the Magi leave, the family takes off for Egypt, anxious to keep their child safe and well. It does say again and again that God hears our cries and comes close. In less than two weeks, Rochelle and I will celebrate 21 years since our first date. We got together in high school 
And because it was high school, or because it was new, or because it was fun, there were a lot of epic makeout sessions. This is the fifth kind of Advent sermon where your minister talks about making out. <laughs> epic makeout sessions, just kissing and kissing for hours on end. And sometimes, when we were tired of kissing, okay, when she was tired of kissing, I'd convince her to just put our mouths together and just breathe. I'd breathe out as she breathed in. She'd breathe out as I breathed in. The same breath flowing through our bodies. Yes, it was a very high school thing to do. Yes, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit it to you this morning. Yes, I did ask her permission to tell you that. But in that moment, it was the most intimate act I could imagine. It was as close as I had ever been to anyone other than my parents to share breath, to give and take it one to another, to long to be as near to each other as two people could be. There's nothing in the Bible that says God wanted that nearness. There are no stories of Jesus making out in high school or otherwise. No accounts of romantic love between Jesus and anyone at all. Jesus never comes up from his parents' basement, flushed and starry-eyed, to be asked by his mother what he's been doing. To which I replied, making out, do you want to know more? (laughs) Jesus didn't do that. But the, tra- but the church has traditionally read Song of Songs, which begins, Oh, that you would kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, as a love song between God and God's people. The story does say that Jesus is betrayed by Judas with a kiss, which is pretty intimate. It does say that Mary covers his feet with kisses, which is just as weird as breathing together in my book. And more than swapping saliva, the story does say that Jesus told his friends, this is my body, eat it. This is my blood, drink it. It does say that they got so close that they thought of themselves as one body, all breathing in and out together. It does say that when he died, he sent a wind, his spirit, a breath to fill that body. It does say that God so loved the world that God came close, as close as God had ever been to anything or anyone. I didn't know Bill or his family before he was dying. His daughter and son-in-law joined our church six months before his funeral, and then they left in an RV for five months. They only came back when they had heard her father wasn't doing well. And they called me in to meet with their family and hear their stories before he was gone. And then one afternoon in the middle of the week, they called the church to say they were at hospice and it was happening now and would I please come over? I had never been invited into the room as someone took their last breath. I was honored that they'd have me in that sacred moment, but I had no idea what to do. When I got there, they were gathered around the bed. Bill was already past knowing what was happening. 
His wife of more than 60 years was holding his hand and everyone else just watching him breathe. I held his wife's other hand and said a prayer and then I took my place in the circle. It was that chain stokes breathing that people near death do. A number of quick breaths in succession and then a long pause. Each time that pause feels like maybe it's the end. And then another gasping breath. I remembered it from my grandpa's hospice room. And like us, I imagined his family was both hoping that it would end, that the end would come soon for him, and also hoping that it would never come. That they could just keep standing there and watching him breathe. We stayed there in that circle, watching for the moment when the rhythm of life that had begun at his first cry, that had been watched over by anxious and loving parents, that had been shared with his wife, who was now doing something even more intimate yet. We stayed waiting for the moment when that rhythm would end. And then, without us knowing, his final breath came and went. And there is nothing in the Bible that says God wanted to give or receive such care. Nothing that says God watched person after person take that final breath and longed to comfort each one, to take their hands, to say a prayer, to tell them it was okay to let go, to stand as a witness to the love that they had shared while breath had filled their bodies. There are no stories about how God desired to be in the middle of such a circle, loved so deeply that family and friends would stand watch over the thing they least wanted to see, just to have a few more moments with the one they loved. But Jesus does show up in more than one such circle. When the daughter of a temple leader is sick, he comes quickly to find the family all gathered around, and they think it's over, and he takes her hand, and she gasps and gets back up. Jesus does go to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, too late to say goodbye, but in time to grieve and get wrapped up in family drama. Jesus does finish life surrounded by such a circle of care. His mother and a few friends, one who has kissed his feet, one as close as a brother, all of whom are watching the last thing in the world they want to see, just to spend a few more moments with him, to remind him of the love that he has shared from his first breath, until it is finished. There is no biblical evidence for a sermon that suggests that the God who exhaled the breath of life into everything that is saw how good it was and wanted to be part of it. No story that says God longed to participate in that crying and closeness and care. Nothing in the Bible to justify the belief that God witnessed all of this birthing and anxiety and tenderness and kissing and flushing and intimacy and grief and hand-holding and dying 
No justification for preaching that God watched over it all and wanted more than anything to be part of it, to become Emmanuel, God with us, to put on a body and come as close to us as breathing. No evidence at all that God wanted to take a breath, except that God did it. Every part of it which is good enough.